welcome to the Vocal Fries Podcast, the podcast about linguistic discrimination. I'm Carrie Gillen. And I'm Megan Figueroa. Whoa! Did not say my last name right. Megan <laughs> <laughs> <Hank> Figueroa! <laughs> That's your new name from now on. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I don't know. The tongue works in mysterious ways. It does. And we were just, before we started recording, talking about people eating on mic. Yes. On, on podcasts. And I just got so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Weird. And also, yeah. kind of related to this email that we got from Bethany. Oh, yeah. She just wanted to thank us for, for our comments in our most recent podcast, which was at the very beginning of this month. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> About yes. how it's possible, despite lots of trying, that some people just can't say names in the way the owner of the name wants them to be said. Mm-hmm. It really annoys me when people insist that unless someone is saying their name perfectly, then somehow they're not trying or they're being disrespectful and oh, if only they tried harder, et cetera, et cetera. I say this as someone with a TH in my name. I get it. A non-native speaker of English um, or other languages that actually have the sound is unlikely to say my name the way that I say my name. But I get it. They can try all they like, but they can't. I mean, they can over time, but it's true. It's not going to sure. be instant. Um but yes, we actually should try because mm-hmm. that's not being an arsehole slash asshole. Oh. <laughs> By <Arsehole>. dialectal. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, respecting that some people just don't have that sound available is also important. And I think it's just as arsehole slash asshole-ish to demand that everyone has the same amount of sounds available to them as you do. And I think there needs to be more awareness of this. Anyway, that's been on my mind since I listened to your podcast and I want to thank you because it's so unusual to hear this limitation mentioned. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you, Bethany. Yes, thank you. And I, th- I also want to point out, it's not just the sounds that we have. Yes, right. that's part of it. But mm-hmm. also the sound combinations that we can have. So there yes. are lots of languages where you can't have like certain combinations of sounds. Or, and then another language you can, and it gets really hard. So yeah, we should, we should be aware of this limitation for sure. Well, it's, it's where we see kind of this mock Spanish sometimes when we, um, so Spanish likes vowel, consonant, vowel, consonant. So something like school, you might hear like a, a mock Spanish, like say like a school or a Sprite, right? For Sprite, mm. because, um, like Sprite, that's like three consonants in a row. That's mm-hmm. bonkers, right? For, for a lot of speakers of other languages. Um, so yeah, that's where that comes from. That whole, if you hear, someone perhaps making fun of themselves which is uh, you know fine you can do that or mock spanish a sprite or a school it's it's because of the way that spanish really loves consonant vowel consonant vowel um but yeah and two like i have the trills r uh but just sometimes it's really hard to say it in my own last name so uh when i tell you you can say figueroa i really mean it yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> uh um yes. that that's is how i say it uh 90 of the time yes yeah, the school thing is interesting because both French and English, sorry, both French and Spanish uh, dis- did not like the too many, like the S consonant at the beginning yeah. of a of a syllable. Um, and they both uh, inserted E. Yeah. And then the French deleted the S. <laughs> Getting you école. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Whereas in Spanish it's escuela, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. Anyway. Ah, anyway, there's a little bit of phonology wow. snuck in to this not not and only history <laughs> and, and <Wow>. historical linguistics. <laughs> yeah, my God, we are just Renaissance women. <laughs> um, speaking of Renaissance, no, this is not a good transition. But 2020, <laughs> just go that's with a new it. Decade, come on, why not? <laughs> 
Um, yeah, this is our last episode of the year mm-hmm. and of the decade, if you're being like that and stressing everyone out. Oh, my it. God. Yes. <laughs> Can I just, like, yeah, interject for a, a brief moment? Everyone's talking about all the things they did in, in, the, tw- in the 2010s, and I, yeah. it just makes me feel so bad because like so many kind of shitty things happened in this decade <laughs> to I me know. or to people yeah. that I love and so it's like <sighs> yeah I know there are some good things that happened too but it just seems like let's like calm down a little <laughs> I know I know it's like maybe I should start just like you know define uh, let's see how many anxiety attacks did I have in this decade right <laughs> really what? right exactly a lot can we talk um, about the bad things and the good things <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah. And so just like, um, you know, you don't have to do it, but it is a good point to do a year in review. And this is our, well, we're at like two and a half years, right? Yeah. 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 We've been doing this for a while now. Yeah. I feel like we've had a lot of messages, but like some of our messages, uh, well, ultimately don't be an asshole. The golden rule of treating people kindly. Yes. some, depending on, like, the political context of where our world is right now and everything, some of the messages are more important or, like, more salient. Yeah. Salient is the word. Um, what do you think lately has been your most salient message from the podcast? From the podcast. Or, or you know, like, just linguistic discrimination as a, as a, the general theme I think What's... I think from the podcast it's the it's the nuance that we sometimes lose on Twitter. So, you know, like Zach Jagger talking about like, yeah, it's better to try to pronounce words in a source like way, but if someone else isn't doing it, then that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. You know, like just like trying right. to balance like being a better person and judging other people less. I think yes. that's the best message that I have gotten from any of our guests, at least for this year. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, and I, I mean, I can't help but just love the, the, the new with Ake, the be good and be kind. But oh, I mean, love that. Yes. That's obviously relevant at all times. Yes. Um, but I like what um, Zach's episode two, what was that between Iraq and a hard place? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. uh, the idea that, I don't know. The the be good and be kind. So be kind in our assumptions, too. I always try to bring, like, okay, so who has traditionally been marginalized in this mm-hmm. uh, situation? But then, you know, sometimes I miss, like, okay, um, you know, that makes some assumptions where I, I might not see some nuance right. Of, right. Of, of the non-marginalized um, because I don't know in what ways they are marginalized since they have not been traditionally marginalized as I, or, you know, like Latinx people have or whatever. Or at least within the United States because sometimes sure. things that, they, things are just so different from country to country yeah. that, it, sure, it doesn't look like it's marginalized here, but if you go to a different country, it totally is. And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, like French in uh, Louisiana. French just, in Louisiana. Again, blew or French my mind. in Canada. Yeah. Um, and then think about Spanish in Spain. That shit is not marginalized. Nope. <laughs> you nope. know. Um, or in like a lots of parts of Latin America. It's the hegemonic sure. language. And so it's like, yeah, it's complicated. It's definitely mm-hmm. treated badly in the United States, though. And mm-hmm. so we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Right. Um, but yes, uh, some of that will be lost 
in a discussion of a particular yeah. point, right? Yeah, so we're talking about Spanish in the Southwest. Uh, we're not talking about, again, sp- um, Spanish in Spain, so mm-hmm. let's not pretend that Spanish in Spain is struggling. Um, <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> or or, or even like on the world stage, it's, it's not right. struggling. It's a pretty major right. language in the, in the world. Maybe fifth? I can't remember, but it's pretty right. big. Yeah, so... Um, and we'll never pretend English is struggling. <laughs> nope. <laughs> it is not struggling to function, that's for sure. Struggs to funk. Uh, yeah, I just started reading Jonathan Vanessa's book last night, and he says struggs to funk in it, and that's why I was thinking about it. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> or right, struggs to funk. It's so funny seeing it written. As yeah. As opposed to said. Anyway. Uh, but yeah, now that's nuance. Yeah, I guess uh, 2019 has been the year of nuance. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, we came in, you know, a year and a half doing some, like, more general messaging, and then, like, you just refine it. Yeah. I mean, we we have sadly missed out on, like, all Asian languages, and we still need to do so much. Yes. I would love to talk about all of the... All of the Asian languages, there's way too many, but we could talk at least about some of them. I would love to. I mean, the situation... In let's just take the two biggest country in the uh, countries in the world. Um, the situations in India and China are both super fascinating. Yeah, so yeah, we definitely need to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, especially since Indian um, uh, English is so disparaged here. When we're like, it's they've been speaking English longer than many parts of the U.S. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Indi- like Indian something English that I've been thinking about. Yeah, for variety and it's got yeah. all these fun things about it and yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's just things that we don't remember. We uh, a lot of Americans think that America has this like um, I don't know right to English, and I'm like, well, let's not forget about how it got here, why yeah. it's here, yeah. how uh, so many more people have been speaking it longer than than we have. Yeah, and 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 all the other languages as well. Like it's not just English yeah. we want to talk about. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So uh, yeah, I hope 2020 is less fraught. I know. But I know it's not going to be. I know. At least we can be kind to each other. Let's try to be kinder. Yeah. Um, particularly if someone uh, has a variety of language that's more marginalized than yours. Mm-hmm. But also recognizing, as we said before, they might be marginalized in a way you don't recognize. So just try to be kind. Yeah. Except for Nazis. Except for Nazis. (laughs) Go ahead and punch them. (laughs) Like this show and want to make your own? Let me tell you about Anchor. It's free. And they have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And now you can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. The possibilities are endless for what you can create, whether it's music analysis, your own radio show, or something the world's never heard before. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. And you can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.
really excited today uh, to have our guest, Garrodine McAvoy. Garrodine is a PhD candidate at the School of Law and Government in DCU, um, which is Dublin City University. Uh, her research focuses on the right to a fair trial under international human rights law for minority language speakers. Thank you so much for being here with us, Garrodine. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I'm really excited. And so you're in Finland right now, but you're finishing up your PhD. Right. Yeah. So I emigrated here like officially uh, about three weeks ago, um, but I've been coming here on and off for I did my master's here um, and uh, I've been coming here on and off for about about seven years now. Uh, so I really love it here. Um, and uh, my plan is to like continue living here once I'm finished my PhD. Awesome. And what is your what is your master's in? Uh, so my master's in international human rights law, and I did it in Obo Academy, which is a Swedish-speaking university in Finland, which is the minority language of Finland. So I was, like, obsessed with minority languages, like, from from my undergraduate, which was in Irish and law. So I was, like, a trained legal translator. And then I went to Obo Academy and did my master's, and I focused on minority language rights, which was, like, a really awesome place to focus on that because, I mean, they really understood what I was what I was about. Um, being a minority language university, the only one in the, the country then I started my PhD then on, kind of on the same uh, topic but specifically focusing on the right to a fair trial. Are you from Ireland? Yes uh, yeah born and raised in Ireland yeah. And what's your language background? So I like a lot of Irish people I grew up monolingual um, so uh, my parents and my family speak English only um, but everybody in Ireland is required to speak or to learn Irish in schools from the age of five so it's, it's when we when we start like uh, school like mainstream school we're required to learn Irish. And I mean, I'll be honest, the teaching's not great. So not everybody comes out of it fluent. And that is a big problem with that. There are these sort of like uh, summer, I guess you might call them like summer camps where you go to like an Irish speaking area for like three weeks in the summer and like it's immersion. And I did those three times in my youth and they were like the best thing ever for me. So I was like fully immersed in this language that for me for a long time was like non-existent. It was just sort of a sub- school subject. And it was the first time that I saw it living. And since I started my PhD, I've been kind of like interrogating my relationship with the language and I have dyslexia and it's not, I mean, from a linguistic point of view, there's no research done on it, but uh, there is sort of some evidence to suggest that Irish would be a less deep language for people with dyslexia. So it would be, might, might be somewhat easier to learn and say English, which is notoriously difficult for somebody with dyslexia. So um, I think I sort of found my home in Irish because it was the first first time and I've talked about this on my our own podcast about uh how uh I sort of found myself at home in the language and it was the first time that like the pronunciations weren't trying to like freak me out and trying to like trick me so it was the first time that I felt like kind of not stupid in the language um and it was that sort of connection I think that I always had that when I finished secondary school which would be like high school when I finished that uh, I kind of didn't want to leave Irish so I uh took an undergraduate studying law and Irish and it was like the best decision I ever made because you know I got to go to Montana and teach Irish over there it was so awesome um and then when I was there I sort of interacted with other minority language communities like the Blackfoot community in 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 Montana and was just so so interested by these uh rights and I suppose the people being erased from their own communities and their that part of their identity being uh questioned and uh that's sort of where I came to how I came to be where I am today Oh, really cool. 
So tell our listeners what your podcast is. Yeah, yeah. Shout sure. out your podcast first before <laughs> we get deeper. <laughs> um, so I'm a co-host on a, a podcast called Mother Folklore, which is a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words and words from Ireland. That's our tagline. I um, nice. <laughs> so we do like a lot of different stuff about like learning Irish. We do it in English. And there's a lot of, lots of hang-ups in Ireland about learning Irish and stuff. People are always saying, oh, it's really, really hard and are really sort of nervous to talk about it. So we sort of, I hope we create a little sort of nerd space for people who are going back to learning the language and feel comfortable about it. And then we talk about other like stupid stuff as well. It's not nearly as academic as your guys' show. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Please. Like all, yeah. <laughs> all podcasts about education are good sure. as far as yeah. I'm concerned. And it sounds like our listeners would definitely be interested in that. So yes. we'll we'll make sure to put a link, yeah, to your podcast. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're saying that people are saying that Irish is hard to learn, but does not everyone go uh, learn Irish in school from starting at five? No, so it's there's a really interesting history with it. So at our kind of independence in the 1936, about uh, is when we sort of started to we became a republic in that that time, and there was a, a pushback to sort of separate our identity from British identity. And the way to do that at the same time, there was a revival movement for Irish. So uh, part of that was when we set up our own education system, Irish was mandatory. So there was a real push to learn Irish. I mean, you couldn't get a state job if you didn't learn Irish or you didn't speak Irish. Um, so there was lots of sort of incentives that ended up kind of being barriers. <laughs> and people ended up having a pretty negative attitude because I suppose of the teaching at the time being very much around corporal punishment and stuff and people having negative associations with the language and negative associations with teachers. Um, the teaching being very, very Catholic and very, very uh, staunch. And so uh, it's mandatory for everybody. You can get an exemption if you've been outside of the country. I think it's until you were 11. So if you moved after you were 11, you're not expected to learn the language. Um, and then if you have a learning difficulty, increasingly, there's talk about that being sort of abused. But I think that's a bigger issue about the difficulty of the education system rather than the difficulty of Irish itself. Because um, people will often use dyslexia as an excuse. They're like, oh, how will the dyslexic students? And I'm like, hello, like, if you just did some research on it, you know, because there's no... What I'm saying is just my own experience, but and, and the experience of another dyslexic student might be different, but that research hasn't been done to say whether or not it's beneficial or not, because you can't get an exemption from, say, you have to learn another language, like, say, French or something. You're not going to get one of those for being dyslexic or having another learning difficulty. But just Irish, they're like, no, that's the tricky one. And also, French is not as bad as English, but it's closer to the English right? difficulty than most other languages. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's pretty <laughs> difficult. Um, in terms of, like, pronunciation, and Irish, there's three dialects, and if you know how to pronounce the, the like uh, vowel and, and consonant combinations, I mean, you're good. You know how to pronounce any word that you've not seen before. So uh, that's not something that I have in uh, sweet. I'm learning a bit of Swedish, and I, I guess that's a little easier. And allegedly Finnish, but I haven't I haven't tackled Finnish yet, um, just yet. It's quite tricky. Yeah, as, as far as I understand, yeah, Finnish is much more like you you see. A vowel, you know how it's pronounced. You see a consonant, you know how it's pronounced. Right. Oh. Yeah, they don't have spelling bees here because everything's <laughs> yeah. really easy to spell. Yes. Just like, why would you not know how to spell that word? Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> oh, so jealous. English is so <laughs> terrible. <laughs> The, the spelling yes. system, the spelling system. Yes, yeah, the spelling system is terrible. <laughs> uh, so we really want to have you on today to talk about um, language and justice and how it actually turns out that there's a lot of injustice when it comes to language. Um, and I want to start off with a, a, a term that I had never heard before. What is inequality of arms? Because I think that's kind of a, an oh, interesting sure. way to start. 
this. Yes. So that's like the foundation of my uh, research, the inequality of arms. So that's kind of like a, a really like hot topic in European human rights law. So we have a pan-European uh, human rights court called the European Court of Human Rights that I'm really focused on. Um, and there's an international court as well from the UN, but uh, the Europeans are super into the equality of arms. So what that means essentially is that you can't have a situation where one side has like insurmountable power and resources and the other side in a court case has like minimal resources and minimal power um, and it comes from a, a really famous case is called the McLibel case which was a case where two people were sued for defamation by McDonald's in the UK and they were like these two people from like a Greenpeace-esque organization who were like standing outside McDonald's one McDonald's in, in the UK handing out like leaflets flyers saying like McDonald's might be bad and McDonald's sued them for like an insane amount of money and it was just these two people who had like no resources and the case went on I think it was the longest case in, in UK history it went on for like 10 years McDonald's had spent and like the amount I think it was something like the amount of a, a small country's GDP on their case and these two people had like no funds so that went to the European Court of Human Rights and they said that's not fair you have to give people aid and you have to help them when they have like not enough means it doesn't have to be exactly equal but it has to be somewhat that it's fair and that one person isn't completely inconvenienced by their lack of resources and where that comes into my research um is with language because when you speak the language of the court you are at an unbelievable advantage compared to somebody who doesn't speak that language because you can communicate with your lawyer you can communicate you can understand okay you might not understand everything that goes on in the court because the language is particular to the court but at least you have the facilities where you can ask your lawyer or you can sit there and kind of take notes and maybe ask later or the court will interact with you. But when you don't speak that language, you're very much reliant on the interpreter. Maybe your particular language background means that you've language deprivation, you know, so you wouldn't understand some things. And where that comes into the equality of arms is I think there's an imbalance where there's one person who doesn't speak the language of the court um, and they're not provided with adequate services to allow them to be on the same sort of pegging as the person who does understand the language of the court. Well, and that's really important too. And you, you kind of, um, you said this. So like j the jargon of the court, the legalese type of stuff that we think of, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about like, um, in the U.S., it would be English. English is the language of the court. Um, right. Is that like, that's a distinction, sure. right? The, sure. the kind of jargon that is specific to a court versus like what the language is being spoken. Yeah. And I think that is an issue as well that like the jargon is obviously really difficult for people, but, I mean, I, you're still at an advantage when you speak English. I mean, your education level, your socioeconomic background is important, but you still have the facility to understand that language versus somebody who's have has all of that socioeconomic disadvantage, but then also doesn't speak the language. So what laws are there in Ireland regarding the right to interpreters in court or inter interrogations or other yeah, interactions? So <laughs> it's a tricky question. Um uh, I'm going to say none, Okay, <laughs> but then oh. I'm going to say some. Uh, so we have a couple of laws. So with Irish, I have a constitutional right to speak Irish in, in Ireland. Um, so I have a constitutional right to speak Irish on par with speaking English with the state. Now, that does not mean that it happens. And that does not mean that it makes it easier. But I have that right from the Constitution. Uh, with uh, ISL, which is Irish Sign Language, there is an act that came into place in 2017 and will come into force next year, 
which provides a bunch of rights for people to use their uh, language uh, before the courts and in education and in broadcasting. Um, and it makes ISL an official language of Ireland. So previous to that, we had Irish being the first official language, English being second and uh, constitutionally, and now ISL is a third official language uh, legislatively. So there's those two languages have like at least constitutional and legislative protection. Otherwise, there's kind of policies for interpretation. So uh, if you are interviewed by the police, uh, they are required to, to provide you with an interpreter if you don't understand or speak the language. If you go to court, you're required to be provided with an interpreter if you don't understand or speak the language. And that's from the, as I said earlier, the European system of human rights and then the United Nations system of human rights. So the standard is understand or speak, which I have a problem with because what the hell does that mean? Um, and it's also quite sort of spoken language centric, um, uh, which is problematic in itself. Oftentimes you'll have a case where a judge says to somebody, hey, you're, you're Polish, you've been living in Ireland for two years, why don't you speak Irish? I'm not getting you an interpreter. And then you have all of that bias about what people should have with their language. I mean, I can order coffee in Swedish. I live in a little Swedish speaking town. I can order coffee here, but I can't defend myself in court here. <laughs> not that it's ever had to happen, but you have oftentimes where uh, it happens with the police as well. They might think that somebody is like just trying to like uh, be awkward and evade justice and think that we're not going to get you an interpreter because uh, we think that you speak perfect English because we saw you chatting with somebody outside the the, the police station or whatever and that's not specific to Ireland because it's really stressful like being being interviewed by the police I'm assuming is like super stressful right yeah it's a totally different level of stress versus ordering food just totally exactly. different <laughs> and I mean just the idea that we wouldn't err on the side of caution when it comes to these things instead that you have police officers assuming you know like okay exactly. suddenly they're all of a sudden they're like able to to talk about proficiency as if they were trained in it exactly. or something yeah that's that's really unfair uh, that's that's so the thing like it's it's if you just erred on the side of caution and provided an interpreter i mean w they're not paid well enough anyway for it to cost enough money like so i don't understand like if if on appeal if you get you know if you end up going to court and it's a it's if it's found in court that you weren't provided with an interpreter or if you weren't provided an interp with an interpreter in the first case and then it is appealed you know, it's going, how much money is that going to cost in comparison to just providing an interpreter? And like availability of interpreters is another issue in itself. And it's not just in Ireland. This is like, I, I think anywhere I look, this is sort of a global issue that any, if you make the interpreters available, like, and make them paid well um, and put systems in place that they can be used freely, then these problems sort of uh, don't arise. And they, they make things fairer for other people too. So if you have that oversight, for non-English speakers or non-majority language speakers, you will have the same oversight for other people too. So I think uh, that's maybe something that people should... I, I wish people would understand more, but again, linguistic discrimination is always like the... I don't know, the, the one that people never think of. It's really frustrating. No, yes, right? it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> for, some people, uh, for some reason, people think it's like a legitimate concern that they're allowed to have about other people. Or, you know, it, it's... Yeah. Right. I don't know. What, you know, I mean, it's why we have a podcast. <laughs> it's, yes. It's, it, the whole you know, point of this um, podcast. It's like, oh, you're doing a thing. And I don't think you know that you're doing it because I, you know, I think you're a better person yeah. than that. In Ireland, Irish has, if we're like the, doing the hierarchy, it's at the top in government wise. Mm -hmm. Yet people will assume that you know English well enough. So they will try to do court proceedings in English and not give you... Um, access to interpreters 
in Irish. Is that a lot of things, a lot of what's happening here? Yeah. So there's, it's, it's a really weird situation that Irish is the first official language. And then sort of you get away with saying, well, it's not a minority language, so we don't have to provide for it for a minority status because it's the first official language. Um, and it's the first official language, again, for those reasons that I mentioned earlier about like identity and separating an, ident- an Irish identity at, at independence. What ends up happening is, I mean, I'm a fluent Irish speaker and I've got a degree in law and Irish. And if I was before the court, I would not speak Irish because I would be so afraid of the bias that would be against me because... If it's a jury case, that whole jury know that I speak English because there's nobody in the country, I would suspect, apart from a very few, and I would say less than 10 people uh, who are quite old and maybe speak only Irish, maybe in the west of Ireland. So for the vast majority, uh, they are bilingual to the degree of English is often better because you have more resources um, and more content, particularly when it comes to things like uh sort of court speak that you might hear about it mostly on the news so that you'd be familiar with those terms mostly in English rather than in Irish. So you you will be provided with an interpreter, but that comes with problems too. So they will provide you with an interpreter if you seek one, or they're supposed to provide you with an Irish speaking judge. That doesn't always happen. Um, the judges aren't always trained. And it would more likely happen in a Gaeltacht area, which is an Irish language speaking area. Um, however, in my own research, I've, I've done some research on it, and that's not always the case. There are some judges in those areas with, with incredible biases against people, even with just Irish language names, who have a complete bias against those people, which is so frustrating. And so you've got to be really careful. And I think it would be in people who, from my research and from the, the data that I've collected, the people who take their cases in Irish are people who want to prove a point. So those are the people who want to make a stand on the Irish language, which is fine. I don't know if I'd be brave enough to do it because I always say when I'm, I'm doing these interviews with people that I, again, I've got a, you know, the, the background, but if I'm like driving my car and I'm at like a random, they, they do those checkpoints in Ireland for like breathalyze you for like drink driving or uh, check for like tax ins- or insurance or whatever. And I'm always terrified. Like, I mean, my car is fully insured in tax and I'm terrified and I don't drink and I'm scared. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe somehow I've broken a law. <laughs> I'm just scared of authority. So when I'm rolling down the window in my head, I'm like, you should be the one because you're so prepared. You should be the one that speaks Irish to this police officer. But I'm too scared to do it because I'm scared they'll take my car. You know, they'll find something wrong with it and impound it. And then, um, and that's sort of a common. So I've got two supervisors and one of them speaks Irish and the other one doesn't. And the Irish speaker is like, totally gets it. She's like, yeah, I'm too scared to speak Irish to the police too. You know, I would never do it because it would be so negative. And the other one's like, what the hell? Like you both are Irish speakers, like doesn't really understand. But so I think there is that sort of, I mean, look, it's not nothing new that there's problems in policing all over the world. Ireland is no exception. Um, and, you know, some police are great, but the systems are, are pretty, pretty poor. Um, and you have those biases coming into it. So yes, you can use your, your language in official capacities, but you better be prepared to wait or to suffer for it. So it almost sounds like putting Irish at this top of this like official language hierarchy is posturing. Right, yeah. And I think that's exactly kind of what it's become, which is really frustrating because that's not how constitutional law is supposed to work. Um, right. It's really yeah. annoying, you know, that it's become this sort of like twee thing that people will say... Uh, there's a really good academic uh, in Galway who talks about how people will speak in Irish at the start of a speech. So they'll say, Ahorja, which is like friends or people, and they'll give their little few sentences and then they switch to English. And that's kind of the status that Irish has. It's nice for like official ceremonies and stuff for the start, but then we switch back to English because that's the working language of the country. And I mean, that's a minority language. That's okay. 
but uh, to have that, it's frustrating when even they provide the services, but the services are so poor or so uh, negative to use that it's actually a detriment to use those services rather than a benefit or even just the same. I don't want it to be a benefit. I want it to be the exact same as English. And that's not the case. What is the message that um, speaking Irish um, sends to the police officer? What are they seeing or hearing when, when someone speaks Irish? And that's, that's such a good question. I haven't come to the answer yet. I have my own theories on it. So um, I have a couple of theories and I think one of them might be to do with the fact that the Irish police service has an inherent relationship with um uh, I suppose the IRA and terrorism in Ireland and terrorism in Northern Ireland and uh, for a long period of their history uh, their sole purpose or their major purpose was protecting uh, against terrorism and a large part of the IRA's sort of mandate would have been the Irish language because it, it, it demonstrated something that was incredibly Irish so when you're living in Northern Ireland and you have all of this uh, British rule Irish represents something that's different and it represents something that's truly Irish in their eyes. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that point of view. I think Irish is for anybody. Um, but uh, there is an association with with the IRA and Irish. And I think one of their major slogans, which is Chucky Garlo, which is our day will come, would have been something that they painted on walls and they said a lot. So perhaps there's that association. A lot of the people who were arrested during the like major parts of, of, of the war in Northern Ireland would have spoken Irish on the jail block so that they could communicate in secret to each other so that the, the, the jailers couldn't understand what they were saying. And so I think that might be an association. Um, then I also think perhaps on a sort of very meta level, I think people are suspicious and scared of the other and the other person particularly when they know that that person speaks English. So they know I speak English because nobody doesn't speak English. So they are suspicious of my reason for using this language and see me as a troublemaker. And you see that narrative in like a ton of countries. I've done some research on it and you see it in the United States. Spanish speakers, people assume that you're just doing that to make trouble. Um, you know, you've lived here your whole life. Needless to say that that person has probably lived in a Spanish-speaking community their whole life, you know, um, and their preferred language, particularly under a stressful situation, is Spanish and they have that right. Um, but, uh, and then I also think there's those negative associations with Irish that I mentioned earlier from school. People have bad opinions of it. I mean, the police in Ireland are mandated to learn Irish, a certain level of Irish. Um, so they're supposed to be able to say something along the lines of like arrest you in Irish or like get your name and details in Irish or uh, at least tell you enough that they can contact a colleague who does speak Irish better. Um, that doesn't always happen. Um, I hope that it's getting better. I don't have any evidence to suggest that it is, but um, uh, I would hope that it would be getting better and people would have a more nuanced understanding. But we have our own problems in the policing service in the recent years, so maybe they're not as focused on, on Irish language and uh, linguistic justice as they ought to be. Right. Yeah, there's always more things that you can be worried about. But they're connected. <laughs> Language is <Right>. connected. <laughs> no, I'm like, exactly. I'm like so struck every time that we have a guest who explains like their country or their community's history, how it plays out in language. Like, mm -hmm. over, like to think about the, the, there's just years and years and years of conflict and strife and all of that, that go behind choices, uh, you know, sure. language choice and all this. I see how this becomes very much a thing of identity. Sure. So do you know of any cases where someone insisted on speaking Irish in the court? Sure. So from my own research, I have a couple of examples of people 
being arrested and the police legitimately saying like without sort of hesitation I'm arresting you because you're speaking Irish and uh, I have cases where people gave their name which is an Irish language name and they were arrested on foot of that because the uh, the police officer wanted the English translation. So what is your name in English? And that happens to me all the time. And people assume that my name is is a translation because there's this nuance of when we go to school that your teacher will give you an Irish name so that people will assume that my name was Geraldine and then I became Geraldine and then that I just, it's just sort of stuck. So sometimes people will call me Geraldine, which really grates on me because that's not my name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they just sort of take liberties with Irish names because they don't do that with like non-Irish names, which is, you know, my, my partner's got a Finnish name. And when he's in Ireland, people don't say, what's your real name? What's your name in English? You know, <laughs> Which is so annoying. But um, so in terms of the court, there have been a few cases where judges have refused an interpreter to say, sorry, you're not getting an interpreter um, or you don't get to speak Irish here. Uh, some cases that are currently ongoing. It kind of happens less, I think, in the courts because there is more of an oversight in the courts. So if you are going to be the judge who says you're not getting an interpreter, that's going to get printed in the papers. Whereas if you're the police officer who doesn't have a body cam, we don't have body cams in Ireland, and you're on the side of the road at like 3 a.m. in the morning and somebody starts speaking Irish to you, kind of there isn't an oversight. So I have one side of the story. I don't have the police side of the story. I'd imagine if I got the police side of the story, I would have a very different story and a very... I'm not saying untruthful story, but you have got a party line to sell, so you're gonna you're not gonna sell out the Angard the Shiakana, which is the Irish police, which whose name is in Irish, by the way. <laughs> we call our police Gardi Shiakana, which is like a whole other thing. When it gets to court, there is problems and there's delay, I think is the major problem that if you try to speak Irish, you're gonna be waiting two, three, four years to get your case heard because it keeps getting pushed back because that judge doesn't have Irish and the judge should have Irish. They can't find an interpreter. Uh, you know, tons of sort of like annoying legal problems like that, that it's going to be like months and months and months, even years before you get your case heard. I was not expecting three or four years. That's beyond. Oh, minimum. That (laughs) is beyond. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You'd be waiting such a long time. I mean, there's, there's a huge backlog in Irish courts anyway. Um, we have problems with that, but, uh, because it's such a small country, um, that we kind of have a pretty centralized like court system. So for a major case that has to go to the high court, you could be waiting, uh, you know, years for it to come before the court, um, let alone if you chose to speak Irish for it. And that's another thing I think I've been interrogating with my research, because initially I thought, oh, these are two different groups. I'm studying deaf people and I'm studying Irish speakers. One has a choice to speak English and one doesn't. And the more I interact with it, the more I'm like, it's actually not a choice for anybody I spoke to an Irish speaker. For them, it was not a choice. This was the only way that they were going to interact. Yes, they understood the English, but speaking English was not a choice for them, Um, which I think is, I had a really kind of, one person said something really beautiful that for them, it was like, like marriage vows almost that they said that it was, uh, they were going to be with the language in sickness and in health in the good times and the bad. They were never going to not use the language, which I thought was like the most poetic thing ever. Um, and which I thought was really kind of brave as well because they knew it was going to be negatively affect them, but they did it anyway, because if they didn't do it, who would, you know, who was going to use the language? And then eventually they would, you know, they were, the fear with a lot of people would be if they didn't do this, the services would be cut and then people in the future couldn't do it. Um, but for, from statistics, it was from a statistical point of view, if they didn't do it, then no one would do it. And then they would cut the funding and then we'd have no Irish. So there is government funding that goes toward these services. 
Yeah, there is government funding. Um, it doesn't always go to the most sensible areas. And I think sometimes it goes to places and I'm like, did, did anyone ask anybody who has expertise in this area about it? So there is government funding. And that's something that people in uh, newspaper columns on a Sunday like to complain about, um, about all of that funding that we spend on road signs when it's not that much money. <laughs> so there's this assumption that there's all of this money to be had in Irish and all of the money is spent on translation. And I'm a trained Irish language translator. I can tell you none of the money is spent on translation. Um, and people just have this weird, I think we're an easy scapegoat because we're this community that, that speaks Irish that can also speak English and we're seen as a little bit strange. Um, so it's easy to sort of like take punches at us. Uh, but, but I mean, we're used to it and, and there's amazing work being done with the language. So it's not going anywhere, despite how many people like, like to say like Welsh, that it's a dead language. Like, what am I speaking if it's a dead language? <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not. It's definitely not a dead language. No. So uh, will you tell us a little bit about, let me, am I saying this right? The O'Mason versus Ireland? Oh, O'Mokin versus Ireland. Sure, sure, here. Did yeah. not say that <laughs> right okay. at all. I'm so glad that you were here to interpret for me. <laughs> okay, how do you say it again? Uh, O'Mokin versus Ireland. Okay, yes. Yeah, so O'Mokin versus Ireland. Will you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> sure. Um, this is like, I'm such a nerd. This is my, I have two favorite court cases. One is the Manitoba language rights cases from case from Canada. And then this case, I love these cases. <laughs> Um, that is pretty nerdy, but I, I, know. I totally appreciate it. I love it. <laughs> um, so this one was about a person who was convicted, uh, committed, uh, accused of a crime. I think there was like a bar fight or something in Connemara, which is a, a, an Irish-speaking region of Ireland. And he was set to be tried for that uh, crime. And Mr. Mokin was an Irish speaker from an Irish region and Irish speaking region. Uh, I think he was from Rossmuch, which is like a pretty, pretty Irish area, Irish speaking area. And he was going before the high court. And when you're tried for a criminal uh, trial in Ireland, you're entitled to have a jury. And much, much like the US system, it's, it's almost verbatim that you are entitled to be tried by a jury of your peers. And in Mr. O'Mohin's eyes, his peers needed to be Irish speakers. So he was going to conduct his case in Irish, as was his right. And he wanted that case to be completely in Irish, to not have to have an interpreter interpret everything for the jury, because the jury are the ultimate arbiter. They're the ones that are going to convict you guilty or innocent, guilty or not guilty. It went through the courts. It was rejected um, by the courts for various reasons. There was a suggestion that there should be a specific jury pool set up of Irish speakers, that those would be, uh, when there was an Irish language case, that those would be the ones from whom you would select a juror. But it was rejected. There's a really good dissenting judgment from Justice Hardiman, which is my favorite judgment because I'm a super nerd. <laughs> it's really, really good. Um, and I think he died recently. And I think it was even mentioned in his uh, obituary. They mentioned that particular judgment because it was just oh, so cool. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it wasn't the leading judgment. Um, so he had said some really good stuff about how, you know, it was the only country in the world where your official language was not the spoken language and you you have an official language but you can't get any services in it he was saying things like he was there was some like really interesting comparisons about how uh interpretation might be akin to hearsay evidence because it's not what the person has said it's an interpretation of what the person has said so when we give a warning for hearsay should we give a warning for an interpretation all of this really interesting stuff there's lots of reasons why it might be problematic to have a uh jury who are Irish speakers, um, mainly because the, the community, the language community is really small and like, re like really connected. So like, it's really hard to find 
like many levels of separation in an Irish language speaking community. Like we all know each other. So that might be problematic in itself um, to find 12 people who don't have an opinion about you previously, who don't know you um, might be really, really difficult to do. But it was a really sort of landmark case where it was kind of one of the more recent cases where uh, language rights was discussed and unfortunately um, not vindicated in the way that I would have liked to have seen um, in that case, there was a lot of sort of mention as Irish being a sort of a, a decorative language rather than uh, an official language as it is, which I think is a frustration of the Constitution. I think you're just willfully ignoring what is written right there in the Constitution, um, which is really, really frustrating because they don't do that for other things. You know, they're really, really, uh, really sort of uh, strong on, on accurately and appropriately interpreting the Constitution. The whole jury of your peers thing, that is just... I was thinking about this before we talked to you, like all day I was thinking about how like so many injustices are in the court at so many levels and the whole jury of your peers is a really big one. Um, All these assumptions that people make about the defendant based on their identity and their language. How is this truly a jury of our peers when you, I don't know, it it, just power differentials, um, all of these things. And so that must really be happening to the people that decided to speak Irish in courts? So much so, because for the most part, the jury, where, where even if you get a case where the judge and all the barristers and solicitors, they all speak Irish, so the whole case is being conducted in Irish, and then you've got 12 people when it's a criminal case um, or a case relating to defamation, uh, there's, there's going to be a jury. And... Uh, those 12 people, the likelihood is they don't speak Irish or I don't speak enough Irish to follow the case. And they know that I, the defendant, don't speak or speak English perfectly. So they know that I'm doing all of this just because I want to um, in their eyes and just because I'm uh, being awkward or being trying to frustrate the process or whatever, trying to get away with something because I'm speaking Irish because somehow that might let me get away with something. So they're waiting for the interpreter. There's a delay. Everybody talks and the interpreter interprets because we don't have booths or anything. Um, So they're waiting on that interpreter. And I mean, you lose, I mean, I think interpreters are amazing. I think they do an amazing job, but you lose so much in interpretation. You lose tone, you lose syntax, you know, you lose, uh, uh, sometimes just concepts and words are not translatable in the same way. And then an interpretation is made on a split second decision. Um, so, uh, I mean, the Irish language interpreters are pretty good. Um, but you, you're already taking a risk to use the interpreter, let alone the fact that the jury is going to be biased against you. There's going to be somebody, nobody doesn't have an opinion about this. And, you know, court cases are really boring to sit through. Maybe they're already annoyed about the fact that they have to sit through this case. Um, and now they have to wait on the, the interpretation. Um, and I would, I was just saying to a friend of mine yesterday who came, uh, an Irish speaking friend who was visiting Helsinki and she was saying that we were talking about how, like, I'd love to get a, study into jury rooms like there's no way that it would be allowed like they're really strict on like not not letting even recently there was the first case where a deaf person was allowed to serve on a jury because there was a problem about letting a 13th person into the jury room in an interpreter so that was recently changed um so for the first time in 2017 we had a deaf juror um but uh i would love to get a study into like biases in injuries because i think i mean we sort of accepted in common law jurisdictions that juries are the norm but I think generally they're problematic um, and people have linguistic biases. And I think it's even more dangerous when they don't know they have linguistic biases because they will ask you at the start of the case, you know, do you have a bias against whatever? 
and people will alert themselves. But everybody's got a bias. And if you're not honest about the bias that you have or you don't realize it, uh, that's when problems can start to arise. And that's when those people don't even realize that they, they don't have a they have a bias. Yeah, I think with language in particular, most people don't know at all. They might know sure. if they're su super racist. A lot of people don't know <laughs> that they're diet racist, but particularly <laughs> if they're only sort of racist with through language and they don't have like a, like all the other racist ideas, they don't know. They just well, don't they never know. had to really interrogate right, right, yeah. like their the situation around them because they're probably speakers of the quote unquote mainstream dialect. Mm -hmm. And you don't even have to be, right? Because you can be a part of one community and be racist against another one. Like there's like all kinds of bias throughout. Sure, sure, yeah. I guess, so you, you brought this up um, when we were, uh, well, you were emailing earlier about how actually you might even need different interpreters in different situations. So like if you're using the same interpreter with your lawyer and, and, and in the courtroom, there could be problems so what are those problems sure. why, why would that be um, and this issue? is a really interesting issue that comes up a lot particularly with like smaller lesser spoken languages so if you have somebody who's like a really obscure language speaker in uh some place and there might be like one interpreter or a person who's like going to act as an interpreter because there's not even training for that language um you might be pretty limited as to the person that you can use um, on an interpreter level burnout is a huge thing so like you should be changing the interpreter every half an hour 20 minutes that does not happen like anywhere um conference interpreting is actually pretty good sometimes they will uh and the uh international criminal court they're like the top tier of interpretation they're awesome uh uh they're so so good um but uh when you have a situation where an interpreter is used in so say you have somebody who's arrested and they speak uh i don't know they're uh a minority language speaker and they go to the police station and they are interrogated by the police so that that procedure happens as an interpreter there so lots of things are said there um that maybe don't end up in court or maybe are superfluous information but nevertheless uh are said during the course of the interrogation and that interpreter is privy to all of that information then you have a situation where okay it's going to go to court this person is being prosecuted for it so that person has to hire a lawyer. So they hire a lawyer and they go and consult with their lawyer. Their lawyer is a majority speaking uh, lawyer. They don't speak the same language, so they need an interpreter. Then you have an interpreter in that situation, which is even more problematic because the interpreters heard everything before. Whether or not they know it, they are privy to certain information um, that may or may not come out in the uh, consultation, which is fine because usually the, the lawyer will have access to tapes and stuff of the consultation of the, the interview in the consultation. But what is said in the consultation is protected by lawyer client privilege. However, there's a huge issue as to whether that interpreter is bound by lawyer client privilege. So can you subpoena the interpreter and ask them what was said in the client consultation? I don't know of any cases where it's happened, but there's kind of a sort of a gray area on whether or not it could happen. Um, I think Professional ethics would say that an interpreter shouldn't do that, but not every interpreter is like bound by professional ethics. In Ireland, we don't, the, the professional ethics that interpreters have are like non-existent um, with the exception of, of Irish sign language interpreters who are like amazing and have like professional degrees and stuff. That's not the case for most interpreters. Um, and then when you get to court, you know, is that information that came out in the consultation going to, to come out in the court? And as a, by way of an example, a good friend of mine is 
an ASL interpreter, so an American Sign Language interpreter, and has worked in a lot of cases in the United States. And she was explaining to me that um, it was some case about, uh, I think it was a car accident that happened. And there was an interaction where the car, one car uh, uh, crashed into another car. And it came at the car from a particular angle. And I think the, the question in the court was, you know, did your car hit the other car? But the way that that was signed was such a way that it had prior knowledge of the way that the, the inter, uh, intersection was. So it was a particularly sort of unusual intersection. It wasn't like a crossroads. It was kind of like a diagonal roads met at a diagonal intersection. And it was only through prior knowledge that that interpreter could have known exactly what intersection was being talked about. And so they signed because they previously knew and my friend was working as a uh, an ASL consult for the uh, defense. And she noticed, she was like, hey, that person had prior knowledge. That person must have worked previously. And the person, in fact, was, the I think, perhaps the interpreter at the police station. And so I think they had to change the interpreters because that person had previous knowledge. So it comes out a lot in, in signed languages where that sort of information needs to be coded. And you can't just say... Something like, did you hit the defendant? You need to you need to put in force, you need to put in time, you need to put in where on the body, what part of your body you hit with, you know, what kind of a slap it was, whether it was a punch or a slap or a kick. Um, so saying things like, did you open the window, is like really problematic in sign languages because you need like what type of window, how difficult was it to open. You need all of that for sign languages. So it can be really problematic with those languages. It can really interfere with the fairness of procedures but then from an interpreter point of view, interpreters very often don't get prior information. So they need to prepare. If they know that they're going to be talking about certain topics, they need to have that terminology at hand or like refresh themselves a little bit. And so very often lawyers will be quite like jealous about their um, their documents. They're like, no, we're not giving you anything in advance. So the interpreter can only do their job so well if they're prepared. So oftentimes a really good study that I read by Kate Waterhouse, who's an Irish um researcher she did information she did a research on the district courts and interpreter usage and all the interpreters were saying that they loved when they were the same interpreter for the police station and the courts because it meant that they had some prior knowledge and like most of the time they don't get prior knowledge so that meant that they could do their job more effectively so there is sort of conflicting interests there whether or not your interpreter is adequately prepared versus whether or not your rights are being vindicated as a defendant yeah i mean this is a matter of people's lives too i mean legal interpretation wow sure and that's i think that's the issue that i had the most trouble with that i know there are cases where people have gone to prison on faulty translations i know that they've happened there's been cases in the united states where it's happened i have uh there was a time magazine article about uh a case where there was some sort of it was a drug case relating to uh, a spanish speaker and the Spanish speaker said, man, I don't have 10 cents. And that was interpreted as, man, I don't have 10 kilos. And then the judge said, oh, that's 10 kilos of cocaine, prison, you know. Oh, um, wow. And I think there happened to be a Spanish speaker in the audience who was like, hey, no, that's not what he said. Um, but otherwise, you know, how many of these things go amiss? I mean, I know court cases are recorded, but how often are they checked, you know? How often do people go through the transcripts with an interpreter or a translator and say, hey, that's not what was said? You know, and I don't think that happens very often. I mean, even when it's just all in one language, all in English, there are um, the things are not transcribed correctly. Um, there have been times when the tapes of uh, the tapes and the transcription totally do not match. Sure. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's even more problematic than when you have a deaf 
person because unless there's audiovisual interpretation for both the interpreter and the, the deaf person, you're not getting what was said. It's just whatever the transcriber or the stenographer took down. I mean, or the record, if it's audio recording as we have in Ireland now, it's just whatever is spoken. You don't, you don't get what is signed. And that's so, so problematic. And if you include video uh, recording, which is obviously more expensive, but it improves things for everybody because sometimes audio isn't enough. I mean, you, there's nuance to, to the way people say things or, I mean, I, I transcribed all of my interviews, which was like awful, <laughs> which I hear you guys talk about transcription all the time. It was like, I hated myself yeah. after it. I am not good at <laughs> it. Oh my goodness. Um, so, and I remember transcribing it and reading it back and, and thinking, no, I mean, that sounds like this one thing, but I know that they meant that sarcastically, or I know that there was something else in that, or I know they were really upset talking about that. So you need to put that in. And that's lost, I think, when you have just transcriptions and audio as well, you know, you, you lose some of that. So if you improve it for the minority, you actually improve it for everybody. Um, yeah, as always. Right? <laughs> as always. Um, well, it is getting late here. <laughs> sure, sure. And I'm sure you have, and you a, have a full a, day ahead day of you. To too. Full day of PhD work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, do you have like one last message for our listeners? I don't know. Don't discriminate against people's languages. <laughs> yeah, um, right? I don't know. I think, yeah, I think. Simple and sweet. <laughs> if, if there's anyone who has any sort of uh, power to, uh, uh, like change things on a, a societal level, then sure, please do that. <laughs> I've got, I've got, yeah. I got a lot of ideas. <laughs> Otherwise, um, I'm not so sure. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we always leave our listeners with one final message. Don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. Oh, can you say it in Irish? Exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> so uh, you would say, no be the bodalon. Um, don't be an asshole. Oh, okay, Perfect. so that's like a literal translation? Yeah. Cool. Don't be an asshole. As a bodalon is like asshole or like, yeah. And thank you so much for talking to us about all of this. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I, I couldn't sleep last night. I, was so excited <laughs> I mean, what so can sweet. we say? We're like Disneyland. <laughs> language uh, language associated people yes <laughs> thank you so much Garadine. yeah thank you yeah no worries the vocal for us podcast is produced by me carrie gillen for halftone audio theme music by nick granham you can find us on tumblr twitter facebook and instagram at vocal fries pod you can email us at vocal at gmail.com and our website is vocal fries pod.com <laughs>